0: Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. You know, if you've read through the Gospel of Mark, especially at the beginning, you just have to marvel at the at the sequence of events. Uh, Jesus is baptized. He immediately proclaims the presence of God's kingdom. Uh, he retreats into the wilderness and then he returns to start calling his first disciples. Now his time in the wilderness would surely have been a time of very deep prayer. And so he, he comes back to town after an extended time of prayer and right away he starts calling these young men to follow him. And they do. So. Were they an answer to prayer? It would seem so. But think about that for just a minute. The next time you struggle with God not answering your prayers the way you want Him to, just think about how God answered Jesus. James, John, Nathaniel, Philip, oh, sure, no problem. But Judas? Even Peter, who could be such a pain in the neck sometimes and yet there they were and and the remarks that the disciples make later about when is jesus going to restore the kingdom to israel when they start asking for preferred seats around jesus when he sets up his government as they think he will do or wanting to call fire down from heaven on people all of that suggests that the disciples may have expected something different from what they got with Jesus. They seem to have wanted some action, you know, something that overturned the, the corrupt status quo, N- not just like a single episode of dumping over the money changers tables, as if that really accomplished anything in the long run. Instead, they got a whole lot of wandering around and talking. Uh, yeah, sure, there were miracles and drama here and there, but, but in between, there was restful movement, as if the need to accomplish something observable was not always on Jesus' daily agenda. In contrast to what was experienced in the disciples' old lives, you know, like toiling each day, catching fish, or or doing whatever work was needed just to keep heart and soul together, their following of Jesus was really more of a restful movement, at least up until the time that Jesus was arrested. When Jesus' followers were with him, they joined him in the the easy confidence that he had in his heavenly Father. He didn't seem concerned with making things happen. Rather, he was always responding to the work that God was already doing in the world. He was always listening to his heavenly Father. Well, the author of the letter to the Hebrews uh, speaks of rest in a very profound way. He reflects back on the wilderness wanderings of the ancient Israelites who who were told that because of their unfaithfulness, they would not enter God's rest, which points back to Psalm 95. Theirs would be a generation that would remain restless. Well, this, this biblical idea of rest comes, of course, from the creation story where God, after spending six days creating everything, rests from his labors. Now, it, it wasn't that God was tired, that God was worn out from working too hard and in desperate need to put his heavenly feet up. It, it was that his work included a time of luxuriating in the beauty that came from the work of his hands. It reframed the idea of work away from non-stop toil to life-giving activity in which rest was not a contrast, but rather a pause that was integrated into a life of productivity. This uh, this was a very important revelation to the ancient Israelites who had come out of their enslavement in Egypt, where labor was a never-ceasing, 24-7, anxiety-creating burden that was imposed By the Pharaoh. However, under the rule and reign of the God who had rescued them, labor wouldn't vanish, but it also wouldn't form the core identity of the people. Their identity was to come in their rest, their Sabbath rest, where they would remember their value as human beings embraced by the love of God. Now, Jews and Christians have this creation story in Genesis. But you know, in ancient times, that wasn't the only creation story floating around the ancient Near East. There were pagan creation sagas as well. And very often in those stories, the gods, having created things, also ceased from their creative activities. Um, And the creation of humans was for the purpose of having earthly minions do the bidding of the gods. So the rest in the pagan stories was just because it was now time for the humans to get busy and serve the gods. But in Genesis, the first human is welcomed into a garden of God's creation to enjoy that which God has called good and to engage with God in an unhindered relationship. Well, many in ancient Israel believe that to enter God's rest was to finally lay claim to the land that had been promised to them by God, whether that was right after their rescue from Egypt or even much later as they awaited release from exile. But the author of Hebrews claims that the true rest that God has always desired for his people is not a geographical location, but rather a centering in the very life of god the invitation is not into their rest but rather into his rest you know this is important to us all the time but i think it's especially important right now if you happen to watch the presidential inauguration on wednesday regardless of your political preferences you might have breathed a sigh of relief as the event proceeded with calm celebration. There were no riots, there were no violent protests as many feared. And so maybe a lot of us hope that perhaps we had found a a time of rest. But if history is any indicator, if we do find a time of rest it'll probably be short-lived. We still have a lot of problems in our country, and there are always new disasters that pop up, causing us to wonder if we're coming apart at the seams. Anytime we think that we have finally found our rest, something will come along to shake us up. Our rest is mostly a place we visit, rather than a place where we live. The rest we need is God's rest, that place of being centered in the rest of God. The author of Hebrews encourages his readers to make every effort to enter that rest. Now, if you think about it, that's an interesting statement, to make every effort, to hurry up, to be diligent in order to enter God's rest. I mean, that almost sounds like the way we Americans do vacations. We work like mad for 50 weeks out of the year and then maybe take a two-week holiday, and maybe not consecutively. We work really hard to enter our brand of rest. My friends in England and Australia think we are crazy here. For, For them, a holiday isn't a holiday unless it's at least a month long. And if it's shorter than that, then it may not be worth taking in the first place. But there's something important about making every effort to enter God's rest. It's not about earning our way to God, but rather working to shed the things that hinder us from entering the rest into which God invites us. The ancient Israelites had had plenty of obstacles that kept them from God's rest, and and most of those were self-created. And we have ours as well. Things that demand that we respond with anxiety and anger and fear, as if we are somehow protecting ourselves from hurricane force winds with those emotions. In fact, the, the Greek word used in the text that we translate as rest offers up the image of a place where the winds are made calm. You know, we get some serious winds here in Southern California, as you know, and when they are blowing, when they are rattling our windows, when they're pummeling our houses and tearing up the landscape, and and too often fanning the flames of brush fires, wind is pretty much all we can think about. It's hard to turn your attention away from the wind when it's battering you. It's only when calm returns that we can let go of our anxiety. Perhaps the purpose of this effort that Hebrews speaks of is to push aside the life-draining things that demand our allegiance and our energy and our devotion so that we can enter the place of rest that is God's. As the author of Hebrews will tell us later, we need to lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Some of you probably know that the, the Greek word that's often used for sin in the New, in the New Testament is a word that suggests uh, missing the mark, like an arrow shot at a target that just doesn't hit the bullseye and goes off into the bushes, or, 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 or straying off the right path and going off into dangerous uncharted territory. Uh, The word can refer to individuals, but also to groups of people. Sin in the Bible is seen as episodic, but also as systemic. In other words, it can be something that happens in the moment or something that infects a body of people like a virus. Usually the things that have historically caused the people of God to wander off the path that God has intended are things that make promises they can't keep. Idol worship was a big problem in ancient Israel as the people continuously turned away from their God and focused on idols that they had believed were were better at certain things, like producing more fruitful crops or seeing to it that lots of babies were born, you know, fertility stuff. And we have our own versions of those idols, like our forebears of the faith, and like them, We are called to lay them aside, to expend effort, to release ourselves from all hindrances and to enter into the rest that God desires for us, a rest that is centered in him. You know, it's interesting how often people think that it takes just a whole lot of work to connect with God, as though God has set up a kind of obstacle course that's almost impassable except for the most disciplined among us. But the effort we're to expand is really about pushing away the things that, that keep us from entering God's rest. God's invitation is open to us. It's not a kind of bait and switch that makes him impossible to reach. And one of the most common obstacles we face is that thing called hardness of heart. Now, I talked about this a bit last week, but the author of Hebrews brings it up again and so we should probably revisit it. He says that there is a particularly significant time at which we should not harden our hearts as if there's ever a good time to do that. And he says that 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 time is if we hear God's voice. We should not harden our hearts if we hear God's voice, which is another reference to Psalm 95. And when you look back at the language of the psalm itself, it reads more like like a plea. It reads, oh, that today you would listen to his voice. It's as though the psalmist is saying, you didn't listen in the past, but please listen now. And so this hardening of the heart can be the result of hearing God's voice. The hardening of the heart can be the result of listening to God's voice. Think about that one for just a minute. God speaks and resistance and stubbornness rise up. You know, it bothers me that that Hebrews translates the plea of Psalm 95 as if you hear his voice. I, I prefer that it say when you hear his voice rather than if, I wonder if the readers are being reminded that constant hardening of the heart makes hearing the voice of God a rare occurrence. That's a pretty high price to pay for stubbornness. And as if to make sure the readers are getting the significance of this, the text expands on the idea of God's voice, of God's speaking, of God's word. And he writes, indeed, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now I know that people often use this passage to describe the Bible, but that's not really what's going on here. See, at the time that Hebrews was written, the writings of the New Testament had not yet been thoroughly collected and canonized as part of our scriptures, right along with the Old Testament. And in the context, the writer is talking about the word that God speaks, the word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. This word of God, is what we hear if we listen and do not harden our hearts. It's a word that separates what needs to be separated and reveals our inner life for what it really is. God's voice brings the kind of judgment that lays out what is true over and against what is false. And it's a voice worth listening to. And so we make every effort to enter God's rest by making every effort to set aside everything that hinders us, everything that stops up our ears, everything that hardens our hearts, so that we will listen. And yes, we do listen through scripture. And and we listen as we sense God speaking to us personally and communally, always testing what we've heard so that we don't wander off into the spaces that offer up alternate gods and idols of false promises and personal preferences. And I also know how challenging it is for many of us to even think about God speaking to us. I I completely get that. You know, the writer of Hebrews doesn't get the idea of making every effort out of nowhere. But the text is getting ready to tell us something very important, that in Jesus, we have a new kind of high priest, a priest who is one of us, one who has suffered and died, one through whom God has defeated death, one who shows us the very face of God, and one who is always listening. And he is one who listens for us. Jesus endured temptation and testing He knows what it's like to be hindered and distracted and burdened. He endured all of those things but passed through them without straying off the path or missing the mark and always listening to God, his heavenly father. In Jesus, we have one who listens for us. In Jesus, we have an eternal high priest. When we think about entering God's rest, we need to think also about being in the place where Jesus, our savior, our brother, our Lord, has gone before us and where he listens on our behalf and where he prays for us. The text is getting ready to tell us here in Hebrews something very important about this and how Jesus is the ultimate of all high priests. You know, too often people have spoken about Jesus as though his, his death and then his resurrection were these two single historic episodes that set everything right theologically. And now he's just sitting back, waiting for people to catch on and pray themselves into God's favor. But Hebrews doesn't allow for that. Jesus is revealed to us as one who continues to be about his priestly work on our behalf that he continues to be at work, that he intercedes for us, that he prays for us. As I observed earlier, Jesus spent a long time in the wilderness praying. And when he returned, he called his disciples. And I believe that each one was an answer to prayer. Are we an answer to Jesus' prayer? Jesus prayed and people responded to his call. Well, we follow him now and he prays for us as he has always done. I believe that you and I are an answer to Jesus' prayers. Let that one percolate in your mind just a bit you are an answer to jesus prayer jesus listens to god the father on our behalf and he prays and i'm pretty confident in saying that jesus prayers get answered the space of god's rest is the place where jesus prays for us He prays for us as the brother who has gone before us, the brother who completely understands us. He is the brother who shows us the face of God, the God who speaks, the God who invites us to hear him and to enter his rest. So we can take all the things that hinder us, especially the other voices, you know those voices, the ones that declare that God's angry with us, that God is disappointed in us, that God is disinterested in us, that God is absent from us. And we can take all those voices and sweep them all aside because in Jesus, God has made us an answer to prayer. You and I are answers to Jesus' prayers. And so right now, let's enter into that rest. And as we do each week, we have a time of truth-telling, which we call confession. And you know, uh, we all have these other voices in our lives. We all have these hindrances. We all have these things that need to be laid aside. And we do not seek to deny those things. We do not seek to act as if they're not really there. Instead, we want to be truth-tellers. We want to speak them out because in doing so, there's liberation and there's freedom and there's forgiveness. And so let's join today in this prayer of confession. You are the everything we desire, the everything we do not deserve. You are the love we have yet to find, the peace beyond imagining. You are the breath of life, enlivening the hardest heart. You are the vibrant color illuminating the darkest dawn. You are the truth that calls in quiet whisper and through storm. You are the precious moment we reach out and touch your hand. For those days when we forget, forgive us. When life distracts and focus shifts, forgive us. When self imposes its own will, forgive us. When our praise and worship fail to please, Forgive us. Embrace us once again, we pray, in sweet and loving fellowship with you. Amen. And now may the God of love and power forgive us and free us from our sins. May he heal and strengthen us by his spirit and raise us to new life in Christ our Lord. Amen.